Area 51 has been a dominant character in the public consciousness since the very beginnings of UFO interest and curiosity about advanced, seemingly alien technological advancements, since the first suspicions were raised with the final destination of Roswell crash debris, the secretive activity conducted at this remote airbase near Groom Lake in Nevada has captured our imaginations in print, television, and film. Except that it hasn't. The truth is that Area 51 didn't really exist in the imagination until relatively recently, and it was not part of the UFO narrative until the late 1980s. Even the most prominent television shows of that era, which addressed the strange and mysterious, shows such as In Search Of and Unsolved Mysteries, made no mention of Area 51 when discussing alien cover-up. It's hard to believe, but Area 51 really didn't exist as a conspiracy theory until the whistle was blown on a Nevada television station. At least, that's what I hear. Sometimes our imaginations are captured by the possibilities of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influence the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. On this episode, Episode 4, the most well-known secret installation in the United States, Area 51. After the break, we'll follow the clues and get in on the secret as we discover our fascination with the secret facility known ominously as Area 51. Howdy, theriologists. All right, Area 51. This is where we're going to do a quick summary, but the summary is really not that quick. I tried to squeeze it up, but let's go over everything in uh, as much as, as, as tight as we can. Uh, Area 51. It's a military base located 80 miles northwest of Las Vegas, Nevada. It's intimately linked to the cover-up regarding the collection and research of crashed or captured extraterrestrial technology since the incident in Roswell, New Mexico in the late 1940s. The, uh, the big showcase year for Area 51 is 1989. In 89, a man known only as Dennis, uh, and later by his real name and identity, Robert Lazar, contacted a Las Vegas television station, KLAS, 
and claimed to have been working as a physicist on a classified government contract known as Galileo, which involved the reverse engineering of alien technology. Now, this whistleblowing event by Lazar led to a frenzy of public interest in Area 51, incorporating it into the lore of ufology and military cover-up theories of highly advanced technologies. The 1990s saw additional disclosure with the heavily redacted history of the U-2 program as officially released by the CIA and widely publicized court case in 1995 involving Area 51 workers that had been sickened by exposure to toxic chemicals. Now, neither event saw an admission of the base existence, instead resulting in a presidential order by the Clinton administration exempting the facility from disclosing its pollution record. The CIA report did lead to a Freedom of Information Act request in 2005 and was re-released in a more expanded form in 2013. This, uh, this expanded re- CIA report uh, is recognized as the first official reference to the facility as Area 51. In the intervening years since Lazar's questionable testimony, Area 51 has ensconced itself in the public consciousness. Featuring in movies such as Independence Day and Super 8, and headlining books and television show episodes, and has become a tourist attraction for the brave and extremely committed researchers and UFO enthusiasts. Now that's everything in a nutshell, but let's dive into the uh, a bit of the background and some of the details. Um, the first thing we're going to discuss really is Bob Lazar. Now, what's key here is that Bob Lazar's testimony is really the jumping off point for this Area 51 conspiracy. But interestingly enough, most of you, if you're not already intimately familiar with this conspiracy, have no idea who Bob Lazar is. And and largely, uh, the public doesn't know who this person is. So let's get into it. And, and, and that's why we're going to go into the history of Bob Lazar uh, quite a bit, just, just as a refresher for people that are unfamiliar. In 1989, a man named Robert Scott Lazar contacted the, the Las Vegas television station KLAS and claimed that he'd been working as a physicist on the government's most highly classified project, uh, which involves back-engineering alien technology. The research, uh, he claimed, took place at a hidden base referred to as S-4, which is located about 16 kilometers south of of Area 51 by uh, an area known as Papoose Lake. He stated that the craft he was shown displayed technology that was hundreds of years in advance of our own. Now, the television journalist that he spoke to, George Knapp, um, whom you are probably familiar with because he co-hosted things like uh, Coast to Coast AM and has been very actively involved in, uh, in the realm of, of cover-up and conspiracy and ufology. Uh, he was interested in the story and started searching for more information. Uh, but here's where the investigation problem started. 
The S-4 base is in a restricted area and it's impossible for anyone outside of the government to visit the place or confirm or deny Lazar's story. Bob Lazar's background was also difficult to verify. His hospital birth records, college transcripts, and employment records, including those of his employment with the Los Alamos National Laboratories, and uh, uh, had been erased, uh, according to Lazar. Now, Lazar claims to have worked at Los Alamos National Laboratories, but no record was, uh, of his, uh, was found of his employment there. Uh, although his name does appear in an old telephone directory of Los Alamos scientists, uh, there's an article in uh, July of 1982 uh, in the Los Alamos Monitor, which shows a picture of Lazar by a jet car and refers to his employment as a scientist with Los Alamo, uh, which can be hard to explain for those people that uh, want to dismiss the claim completely. There are, have also been Los Alamos employees who told KLAS uh, that they do remember Bob Lazar. Now, he worked between December of 1988 and April of 1989 in S-4. During this period, he would have had admission to very private and uh, uh, highly confidential or secret information. Uh, he has seen, he claims to have seen uh, documents and autopsy of alien corpses, uh, and also that the main purpose of his work was to reverse engineer alien flying saucers. He observed nine different kinds of saucers parked in the hangar. Um, he would have worked on saucers with a diameter of between 9 to 12 meters. Uh, he claimed that it had a console and the seats were very small, almost made as though they were made for children. Um, he was told that the aliens came from the fourth planet of the binary stellar system, Zeta Reticuli 2. Now, we're not going to dive into any of that discussion anymore, uh, but, uh, but again, that, that's, a, that's a difficult claim to, to, to stomach because, of course, it's, it's nothing that can be verified. Uh, Lazar w explained in an interview that the alien craft fly by amplifying gravity waves. Uh, according to Lazar, the saucer was moved by a reactor placed on the floor. And as fuel, the saucer would uh, utilize the, the element uh, with the atomic number 115, which at the time of his claim was not a, an identified element on the periodic table. Uh, and, it, and it couldn't be synthesized on Earth. Uh, the element is also the source of the gravity A wave, which is amplified for space-time distortion and travel. So this kind of propulsion, he claims, would, would allow for the, uh, to make the flying saucers invisible um, and the disks not, uh, didn't need to travel in a linear mode, which explains the maneuverability of these flying saucers. Uh, this means that they can cover huge distances in very little time. Uh, of course, in our physics, speed is defined as distance divided by time. These disks operate by warping time itself, 
time, uh, space time itself. Uh, so they break Einstein's uh, rule that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. Uh, one of his largest critics uh, is a very well-known name in uh, the uh, ufological community, Stanton Freeman. After the inability to verify the claims of his education and his professional background. Now that's that's a lot of Bob Lazar, but really that's all we need to cover. Uh, since then, Bob Lazar has really stepped out of the limelight, um, and he and his wife now run a a very interesting supply company that uh, that supplies rather unique uh, uh, scientific uh, materials and equipment. But but uh, that's that's enough on Bob. Now we can we can jump over to uh, the history of, of Area 51, right? So, you know, as a surface, the, the, the wiki definition of Area 51 is that it's a U.S. Air Force facility, uh, of course, commonly referred to as Area 51. It's highly classified, and um, it's a remote detachment of Edwards Air Force Base within the Nevada test and training range. Um, now the the as in and so far as it's recognized, the uh, CIA uh, officially refers to the facility as uh, uh, Homie Airport and Groom Lake. Uh, it's encompasses a very large swath of restricted airspace and has been uh, used for the uh, the testing of, of advanced military aircraft. Um, now, the the name the origin of the name Area Fifty One is unclear. Uh, the most common accepted uh, history is that it's it's based on the grid numbering system of the area by the Atomic Energy Commission. Um, and while Area 51 is not part of the system, it's adjacent to two other areas. Uh, and uh, the another explanation is simply that 51 was used because it was it was unlikely that it would be used by the AEC as a number. Uh, let's see. So jumping through, I don't want to dive too much into Area 51, but as far as what people do know about the, the work that was there, uh, it was uh, really the home for much of the advanced aircraft that we're seeing. It was the home of the U-2 program uh, for the U-2 spy plane. The Oxcart, which was the precursor to the Lockheed A-12. It uh, uh, Also the Lockheed D-21, um, as well as uh, foreign technology evaluation. So uh, anytime a Soviet fighter aircraft was uh, captured, they would be they would be taken there, uh, restored and utilized for drills and training and testing of that. Uh, later it was utilized for the F117 program, which of course was that uh, stealth fighter. And, I mean, that was back in the 1970s. So this technology was being worked on uh, very early on. Now, uh, let's go through. Um, 
eh, let's go through a timeline for Area 51. You know, it, it was, and this is where, as we, as you heard in the intro, this is a bit of how Area 51 starts to blend in beautifully with the history on this. Uh, it was um, it was assigned by the Eisenhower administration and put into the hands of the CIA uh, for the for the Lockheed U2 development back in April of 1955. Uh, prior then, it was simply a, a small air base that was established in the uh, early 1940s, and it, it just encompassed uh, some large dirt runways. Uh, now, the, the grounds around this are still very much strictly off limits. In, in 1957, of course, the AEC uh, distributed a background information on the Nevada nuclear tests in, in the area, and the bu booklet describes a small base at Groom Lake. And of course, that's when that release first started, although the booklet claims that the facility was part of a, a project to study weather. Um, by the uh, 1960s, with the, um, actually when the U-2 was shot down over the uh, Soviet Union, uh, Project Oxcart began uh, to design the uh, the A-12. Now the A-12 is is very neat for those that don't that aren't familiar with it. This is actually the precursor to the SR-71, the Blackbird, um, and I think everybody can uh, is familiar with that very recognizable shape. Uh, so this was this was very advanced advanced aircraft. Uh, by 1961, the restricted airspace expanded uh, upward greatly uh, because of the because of the aircraft involved. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's been hosted by the 1970s. It was it was host to very important projects for the military. Uh, the, uh, of course, in 19, well, let's see here. And 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 you'll forgive me. I'm going through this timeline here, trying to trim out some of these things. But not what's interesting is in 1988, a, a Soviet satellite actually photographed Area 51. Uh, the uh, magazine Popular Science got a hold of these photos, and and ran and ran the photos, giving giving most you most citizens their their first glimpse of the secret base. Uh, although that was interesting and it was fascinating, it uh, it didn't go much much farther than that, other than bringing some level of awareness. Uh, of course, this was soon followed in in 1989 with uh, with Lazar's appearance on KLAS. Uh, in uh, 1995, uh, there was actually uh, the starts of a, a new of a of a a, an active lawsuit uh, in which there were several uh, multiple claimants uh, either injured or having died due to exposure of toxic chemicals from uh, heavily uncontrolled burning of debris and chemicals on the on the facility. Uh, of course, what's interesting on that is that uh, they weren't able to 
to complete that the, the case was dismissed because there was actually no recognized facility uh, for the <laughs> for the judge to to uh, conduct a ruling. Uh, so and in fact, actually, because of that court case, there was more effort to protect the the facility. You know, that's that's really the the uh, brief history of Area 51. Uh, we don't have to get into too much more of it. It's it's a highly classified area, and, and as much as has been declassified in terms of the military history of the research, um, and that's largely unfascinating, it is still very much a controlled, restricted, cl- classified facility even today. Uh, and in fact... Um, it's the first true admission, uh, came about in around 2013 when, uh, uh, President Obama actually referred to Area 51. Uh, and that's, that's largely in a, in a speech and that's largely that the first time that it was, that it was acknowledged, uh, publicly, um. So you know it's it's still very it's still very much an active and operating uh, facility. Of course, it's not unique. There are many facilities, national laboratories, and military installations that have uh, have highly classified activity going on. Uh, but Area Fifty One, of course, has has found a a nice special well in our hearts for this. Okay, so now that we've kind of covered the history on that. Let's uh, let's jump into the theoryology. Now, this is of course where we get into the influences and the mindsets that underlie the real success of this conspiracy in the general public consciousness. Uh, apart from those that are very fascinated in in the conspiracy itself, this has obviously moved into realm of just jumping into the the zeitgeist. I mean, it's it's taken hold in, in entertainment and media uh, uh, well beyond any connection to the claims by Bob Lazar. In, in fact, regardless of, of people's opinions on that, uh, it's been very disconnected and disassociated uh, from that in people's minds. They may not know who Bob Lazar is or when it came out, uh, when the information was disclosed, but they know Area 51. Now, when I first jumped into this, I thought it would be actually a, a pretty simple explanation, um, and that that it dealt with the timing. We are dealing with the late 1980s and early 1990s, which is, of course, the Cold War, military secrecy, and a period of base closure that was being conducted. Um, so we'll jump into that, into that part right now. Uh, we'll start with the defense of, uh, the, the Defense Base Realignment and Closure Act of 1990. Now, this act provided the basic framework for the transfer and disposal of military installations closed, uh, during this, uh, this Base realignment and closure process, uh, BRAC. The the process actually was originally created in 1988 to reduce 
pork barrel uh, spending uh, within members of Cromgris that uh, that arose when when these facilities are face activity reductions, and of course much of the activity reduction came from uh, this this reduction in in Cold War activity and eventually the end of it. Um, you know, in practice, though. This meant the upheaval and displacement of many military families and supporting communities around these bases uh, and, and military installations. You know, between 1988 to 1995, there were dozens of military installations either closed or greatly contracted in size. Now, the, uh, you know, as an example, that that was that was obviously a time of, of potential economic impact and, and Im, impact with uh, with with families. It, there were some estimations during that time frame that it would be hundreds of millions of dollars in economic impact for those areas, even if temporarily that those communities would have to absorb the change, as well as uh, the reduction in force of up to 100,000 uh, civilian defense uh, contractors and employees that would no longer be needed on these facilities. That, that, defense, uh, that defense Base Realignment and Closure Act really stems from the end of the Cold War. You know, by 1989, the Soviet Union had withdrawn from areas such as Afghanistan, and uh, Gorbachev had announced at that time that the USSR would no longer interfere with Eastern Europe. In fact, in the December of 1989, at the end of the Malta summit, Mikhail Gorbachev and U.S. President uh, George H.W. Bush declared that a long-lasting era of peace had begun. And many people uh, regard this summit as the official beginning of the end of the Cold War, which proved true because by 1991, the uh, USSR had been dissolved. You know, with this, with this premise, actually, you had started seeing an, an, an evolution with public opinion. This great enemy uh, was not being viewed as such, there would had been a lot more of a social interest and understanding, and perhaps even alternative perspectives on the uh, Soviet community, the Soviet population, and the countries involved. Uh, especially as information had begun to come out uh, through Eastern Europe and, and the the Soviet bloc countries. Uh, so, so it was not this big ominous unknown enemy, as it were. The Cold War was ending, and the great enemy had been defeated. In, in theory, the public was less willing to support all of this uncontrolled spending without questions, uncontrolled military activity without question. Why would you need uh, a lot of military uh, spending and defense buildup without a, uh, <laughs> you know, without a conflict uh, to target, you know, and additionally, the the space race, you know, as we talked about back with the moon landing episode, the the space race was kind of evolved into a, a rather 
from at least from the public's perspective, mind you, a mundane scientific and, and commercial endeavor. In thought, and this is this is the uh, approach I was taking, was that people would want disclosure, except they they didn't. You know, in reality, everything I could find uh, indicated that the confidence at the time was still very strong in terms of the military. Uh, people trusted that the military activity going on, while the spending was rather excessive by the government as a whole, uh, there wasn't this impact that is largely attributed, such as, as Watergate and Vietnam, which should have possibly impacted this public opinion. In truth, the, uh, the public support for the military was still very much very strong. I mean, upwards of uh, 80% of the population uh, felt that uh, the, they had confidence in the military to act in the public's interest. And additionally, there was not a large outcry of, about having military installations like Area 51 uh, with, with spending and activity going on while other areas were deeply impacted by the uh, uh, Base Closure Act. And, and so I couldn't find any of that. So in, in truth, uh, this, this is really not, not the cause for it. And, and while that's what is largely identified, I mean, polls are showing that government secrecy and spending were losing some support in the public. But really that need for maintaining secrecy within the realm of uh, military technology and development, it was understood and it was appreciated by the population. Likewise, there was not uh, any outward frustration for something such as these highly classified facilities, even in the wake of base closure. Uh, and so with that in mind, and this not being the premise, then then what is the driving force behind the fascination with Area 51? After needing to change direction, I think the answer can be found in something within the psychological realm known as narrative psychology. And that's where we're going to leave off this episode. Uh, next, uh, I'll actually next week, uh, I'll release the part two for this episode. And we'll jump into uh, a full explanation of an area of, of actually identity psychology known as narrative identity. Now, I think this will really point the way and explain how Area 51 took on a life of its own and captured the public's imagination enough to have ingrained itself in all facets of our uh, you know, of pop culture and of media, uh, it, just throughout and public imagination. So, uh, you know, rather than dive into this and make this too long, we'll stop here. So I, you know, that that's, um, in fact, I'm going to make sure that we don't jump two weeks. I'll get this episode out in a week, uh, and, and we'll dive into it. There's a lot to talk to on that. And it's really interesting how it, it paints the, the, the full picture and, uh, and gives kind of a, a much better basis on Area 51 uh, and in the fascination people have with it, other than simply 
discounting it as a, a quick flight of fancy and a frustration with military spending. That uh, it that truthfully doesn't hold hold water. All right, so you know until then we'll wrap this up and uh, and uh, look forward to the next episode. For now, thanks so much for joining me today. You know, it, now if you like what you hear, make sure you hit that subscribe button so we can uh, continue on. You don't miss part two of this and you don't miss the rest of this discussion. You know, oh, connect with me at, uh, at Facebook, uh, Theriology Podcast, at Twitter, uh, it's at Theriology Pod. Check out the show website, conspiracytheriology.com. Uh, I've finally set up a, an email for the show, so feel free to email me at contact at conspiracytheriology.com and uh, jump on any number of ways. You know, ping me on Facebook, and uh, we'll keep growing. I'm I'm trying to develop some much better uh, interfaces so that everybody can reach me uh, because topics like this are, are a lot of fun. And you know, if if I've miss something uh, I want to hear about it now Conspiracy Theoryology of course has been written and produced by me Ryan Nelson uh, music as always by Adam Henry Garcia if you enjoy this music definitely go find him at adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com remember to look forward to uh, to next week pay attention it's going to pop up we've got some other things that uh that uh, should come to play some other episode types and I'm even uh, uh, oh I'm going to be working on a uh, a, pat- uh, a patron page uh, so that uh, with some fun additional content and maybe even some fun merchandise that'll come down the way but I will let y'all know when that happens and I'll make sure to have any of that information on, on the website as well alright well so until next time you know Keep uh, keep watching the skies, everybody. Take care.